From Koningstein Road in the east to Cetus Gap in the west, an orange curtain has descended across the Ojai Valley. This is Ojai Talk of the Town. Hey everyone, it's Brett Bradigan, editor of your Ojai Magazines, The Monthly and Quarterly. Our guest this episode, Danny McGaw, has been making a living as a singer-songwriter for over 20 years. He's lived in Ojai for eight, uh, developed quite a following playing at the Vine before the pandemic, and now he's getting back out on the road. He's been opening for Three Dog Night for the last several months, and he's coming to town, to his hometown audience, on August 19th to play at Libby Bowl. Hey Danny, thanks for joining me. Hello, thanks for having me. Yeah, here we are. Been looking forward to this. You are out there in the world making music, and it's quite a big deal. I want to hear all about it. Yeah, well, it's been a very blessed time lately. Yeah, I've been on the road mostly, and uh, with Three Dog Night opening their show, just me and a guitar singing my songs, and. Um, had some spectacular experiences. We played the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville, Tennessee. Oh, yeah. Did uh, you feel the weight of history? Oh, my God. The ghosts? I, I definitely came off stage and cried in the green room. Yeah. You and uh, Loretta Lynn. Unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. So, any other highlights from this? Now, when did this tour start, and when are you going to be here local? Uh, we're going to be, actually, where I'll be opening for Three Dog Night at Libby Bowl on August 19th. That's a very exciting, uh, that was the first home show in about three years for me, so that's nice. Really? You haven't played in Ohio? Well, we played actually. Well, you jam all the time, don't you? Um, not these days. Not since the pandemic? Yeah, huh? I haven't played with a band in years. Um, I did play solo at Utopi Farms about a year and a half ago, but I'm so busy on the road these days, getting the, getting the boys to, uh, really corralling the boys is difficult. Yeah. You know. So what have you been doing? Are you writing? Yeah, I just released a record uh, three days ago called Set Me Free. Yeah, I listened to that record and I really enjoyed it. I was curious, were there, was there any theme to that? Because it did seem to be like you know, very introspective and had a lot of minor key moments in it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, like ice cream, you think, or let's get ice cream. You think that's going to be a real happy song? Right. That was a bit of a dodge, wasn't it? I do. I do. Set us up. <laughs> I, on the stage, I introduced that song, actually. I say, um, it's a little bit funny, and then it delves into the human condition for a while. But it does reemerge, so stick with it. Okay, good. That seems to help people do that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you do go in there with one impression, and uh, it is definitely... I don't know what you'd, you'd call it. I guess a couple's been bickering for a while, and I've been in relationships where it seems like you can't get out of that. And then to just make a very conscious effort to do something that's fun, which seems like it should just come naturally and be easy and part of the ordinary course, but it's not. And especially the longer you've been together, the harder it is to get those moments away to enjoy each other's company and remind yourselves why you were there in the first place. Absolutely, yeah. And Something like that. That's what I got out of it. And that would be the um, the one-on-one, you know, analysis of it. But for me, usually I write with a broader lens than that, you know. Um, 
everything always ends up sounding like a love song, but I definitely write from above the earth and let from the ether. Yeah, and let and and collective feelings and you know dispersed feelings and allow myself in the song to not only stay on one subject because what I found is when you reach when you allow your consciousness to draw images from different parts of your consciousness they all actually mean the same thing especially with a song like ice cream which is a stream of consciousness it's a it's, it's a series of, of of mental images and memories and feelings and inclinations that by the end of it they're all part of one family which is can we please just move along from this because life is painful and beautiful at the same time but the layers of weight over the years can help make you forget about the fact that it can be beautiful just by walking outside the door yeah and ice cream <clears throat> yeah so um this tour on the 18th now how did you get hooked up with three dog night i mean they they are road warriors and people don't know they have so many great songs joy to the world i mean jeremiah was a bullfrog oh, yeah. I just can't when i was a kid that was like a constant refrain oh yeah all saying that i've learned that on the road with them like they're the soundtrack to so many people's lives yeah it's really really deep how are the crowds beautiful yeah, you sold, find in a sort of ages. Yeah, it, well, it's obviously baby boomers, a lot of them, but yeah, they're not only that, but they're definitely um, passionate. And uh, what I like in my personal place in the universe there is um, Three Dog Night songs are very well crafted. Some of the best songwriters ever. Yeah, and um, and I'm a songwriter, so. I go in there confidently knowing that the people in the audience love songwriting. Yeah. And they love good songs and I care about songs. So that's our first affinity. But in regards to how I got hooked up on that, I, it's kind of Ojai's fault, really. It's, um, yeah. we, we moved to Ojai and I, uh, me, we had a six month old and a three year old, two boys and my wife. And um, we moved from Kansas City and we were flat broke. And um, how long ago? This is uh, eight years ago. Oh, and um, the jamboree was still going at the Deer Lodge, and I went over there, and I had eight dollars, so nine dollars or something, enough for a pint and a tip. So I was, my plan was to go in, listen to some music, play three songs, nurse the pint, see what's going on. And um, luck would have it that the person who was playing after me, also his only time ever at the jamboree was Tim Allen, hmm. T.D. Lind, and um, oh. So he comes up after I've sang and says, nice job, mate. And I say, you're English. And he says, yes, I am. He says, well, stick around then. So he sings his songs. And I'm obviously blown away by him because he is amazing. He sure is. And Another then, friend of the pod. Yeah, he's a good friend. One of my best friends in the world. And um, so, and it's because of this night. So that we stick around, we could make friends. And he says, I'm playing on Wednesdays at the Vine. You should come down and play the break, see if you can get a gig. So I go down and play the break. Nigel wasn't there, but I ended up getting a gig at the Vine because of Tim. And that was on a Thursday and it was empty. And then Nigel moved me to a Sunday. And Nigel used to say, I'm losing money on you at first because nobody knows who you are, but I believe in you and you're going to come good. And um, there was a moment where I was uh, 
after another empty Sunday night in the vine and I stood there in an empty room and I asked myself what it would look like if it was full. So I imagined the room being full. And then I asked myself what it would feel like if I trusted everybody in the room to want me to be all I could be. And um, I went home and I came back the next Sunday and the place was packed. And it literally went from about four people to wall to wall. And it never went back. It was wall to wall for about two and a half years straight. And um, after that first Sunday night when it was busy for the first time, I went to my wife. I woke her up after the show and I said, I got to wake you up because I need a witness. And I said, something crazy happened tonight. And I know that our lives are never going to be the same. And I need you to remember me telling you this because you will be my witness. And she, she still remembers that. And how did it happen just like that? Weren't you, you've been in the music business a long time, haven't you, as a yeah, oh yeah. performer? Yeah, I started, I started writing songs when I was 10, but and, uh, my first career was in professional soccer, but that didn't last very long. And Yeah, well, tell me about that. I mean, where, where did you grow up in England? In yeah, what? I grew up in Manchester, England. Um, Midlands. Uh, Northwest. Northwest. And um, yeah, football mad town, you know. Uh, cotton mills and shipbuilding, a lot of working class people, and which is what I'm from, hardcore working class, and and I was a. Isn't that where uh, Oasis is from? Yeah, I knew every song by Oasis when I was a child, and uh, James and Stone Roses, some fantastic bands from Manchester. But yeah, yeah, you know everybody wants to be a footballer there, really, and I was lucky enough to be good at it when I was a kid, and I I went really far and. Signed a young professional's contract, but several circumstances. I, I, I was injured in the end, but I wasn't a very good professional footballer. I was a bit too much of a songwriter. Is that really where you started to feel the difference? Because it's like with sports, you never know. I know like in American football, you can have recruits out of college who win Heisman trophies and then they get out on the NFL and they just dwindle away after a season or two. It's really interesting. And then there's... And conversely, there's talent that barely squeaked through the team in college. And, you know, like Tom Brady was like a 130th pick or something. Right. That's amazing, isn't it? It's just like, how do you know? Did you feel that when you got out into the young professionals yeah. well, circuit I've, that there were, there were people who were going and people who weren't? Yeah. When I was a kid, I played with some of the best players that went on to be absolute superstars. And um, cause I was in those teams, you know, and everybody already knew then. And it wasn't because they were good players. It was who they were, who the family was, what, what their blessing of emotional, you know, circumstance was within themselves and around them. What do you think? The grit and determination? <clears throat> mm, obedience. Oh, really? Discipline. The yeah. Discipline. When you say obedience, do you mean to a coach's instructions? To a group's to a group's agenda, yeah. yeah. I think that's... And that obedience can be a negative word, but I don't mean it negative. I mean it in a way that there are certain people who find it easy to work within a group and certain people that don't. Yeah. And there are very, very, very few athletes in the don't category. They, You know, you might have your Ronaldos and your Pele's even. But the rest of the the game is built up by people who take a place in a group and do it 
without question. And yeah, um, do it superbly and with and with everyone all else's in mind. And yeah, and and that's very clear in a personality from a young age. I coach a lot, and and that's basically the main thing I'm trying to teach them is you will be selected on your emotional IQ more than your yeah. talent. I can see that. Mm-hmm. I coached a lot of little league, and I would spend. You know, recruiting day, looking at parents rather than kids often because good parents make good kids. Mm-hmm. And parents who are loud or obnoxious or pushy, you know, it makes it just makes it no fun. I'd rather be on a team with a bunch of kids with no talent, with parents who will show up on time and bring snacks and help, you know, carpool to mm-hmm. tournaments and you know, uh, really makes not, everything else yeah, so much easier. And be nice to the referee. <laughs> yeah, no screaming. And, oh, man, it gets so bad. I don't know what it was like. And It was bad. Yeah. it's When I coach, I have a very strict rule on the sideline. It's, please, no shouting at the referee and no shouting at the kids. Let's, let's keep it nice. You can encourage people, but nothing less. Yeah, when they start trash-talking other kids, mm. uh, team, kids on other teams, it's like, it just makes me sad. Yeah. Yeah, it's brutal. So how did you get into songwriting now? I mean, did you, like, pick up something? Did you have a music teacher or somebody uh, that really, like, or did it just no, feel as part of the atmosphere? I know. I, I'm the only musician in my whole family tree. Nobody knows another one. <laughs> um, yeah. There's a rumor of a, a great Welsh aunt that used to like to sing in the kitchen, but I'm a real anomaly. Um, my brother... Tried to learn to play the guitar when he was into Guns N' Roses and he got a black uh, Les Paul copy, just like Slashes at the time. And um, I idolized my brother at the time. He was five years older than me. He was 15. I was 10. And uh, I said, you know, can I have one too? And my dad said, if you can learn to play your brothers, you can have one next Christmas. So I um, set out on the course of trying to learn and I'm left-handed, and his guitar was right-handed. Oh, did you have to restring it? Uh, uh, I didn't. I've learned right-handed. I'll never really know whether I should be playing left-handed or not. <laughs> do you have that left-to-right confusion? I do. <laughs> like, that. your bigger thumbnail is your dominant hand. All right. But I write left-handed. But baseball and sports, I'm, I throw right. Interesting, yeah. And bat both, both ways, fine. Right. But I can't do major muscular movements with interesting on my left side so i've got some some things i do but i think again golf but that was only because there was right-handed clubs around so yeah i think that's part of the reason why because all my brother's sports gear was right-handed so it's what you grew up with but a guitar seems like there's so many great (laughs) left-handed guitar players you know but they're all and there's there's not many guitars left-handed though around when you're a kid looking to pick one up yeah, on the fly. Sure. Yeah, it's not like Jimi Hendrix has given you his uh, hand-me-downs. Right. Yeah. So I, yeah, we, you know, my brother played for a few years and gave up, and I just fell in love with it. And um, well, do you remember what you were playing when you started? What was the uh, what were some of the early jams I, you learned? Besides I was lit. smoke on the water. I didn't learn any of that. No. I'm the worst blues blues player you've ever met. It's, uh, I just learned songs. I would learn the ballads of Guns N' Roses and the ballads of Iron Maiden. And uh, I learned every Oasis song. I learned um, every Garth Brooks song. Oh, Garth Brooks, yeah. That was What was that? Fences was that album that came out? There's so many ballads in that. I remember oh, yeah. when 
the best. Dark at the scene. I was not a country music fan, but that really changed changed dramatically. Yeah. My mum and dad came back from. My dad was working away in Charleston, and he came back with the songbook and the CD. Oh, and for you? Yeah, yeah. This was when I was like thirteen, fourteen by now. Yeah, but, and that was how I learned to write songs because I never had any lessons, and I never had anybody around me who could play. So, so did you just worked it out of tablature, or did you learn um, how to read? Card books. I, I just cards, singing, and listening to the recording. Yeah, it was always. It still is really for me. I'm I'm a better guitar player than I was, but it's always been about songwriting. And I, for twenty years at least, the only reason I played the guitar was to accompany singing. Okay. Well, it's hard to play, and a lot of people don't realize that playing and singing at the same time is tricky. Yeah. Lee Van Helm said it really well the other day, actually. He was saying, you know, people think this is hard because I'm playing the drums and singing at the same time. But it's also connected. So I can leave the space, I can yeah. punch the space, and it's all in the same time. And I feel like that. Like I'm one of the people, most of my singing I've done with a guitar in my hand. So whenever anybody's asked me to be a rock star and stand there with a microphone, I feel like I'm standing there naked. Yeah, I can know, imagine. Awkward body movements and am I supposed to dance? I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that would be like a, it's not, not a, like a crutch so much as a prop. It's yeah, like you a can, shield. <laughs> yeah, you can lose yourself in that instrument. It's like a mediator between you and the audience. Yeah, I call it my friend. Yeah. That's why I buy the, the guitar that I believe in. I tour with a very expensive guitar, and most people wouldn't tour with such an expensive guitar because we take a lot of planes. Yeah, what is your guitar of choice? It's a Collings D2H. Mm, it's a boutique company out of Austin, Texas. Some of the best guitars in the world. Yeah, but, what makes it so good? Oh, the the no. wood chosen, the yeah. the specs that they're the, designed the upon. Pickups and everything is first rate. Uh, I do have the the latest, greatest pickup, but that's not from Collings. Um, it's all about the wood and the bracing and the hand care that the technicians do and what the bracing is based on, the old Martins that... Martins still make guitars, but they don't make them like they used to. Hmm. You know, Collings basically are stepping in the space of making... These handmade guitars. Yeah, and guitars custom. to dream about, yeah. Did you have input into the making of the guitar? Like, oh, I bought it used. You, you, you kind of want to buy a guitar used and let somebody else put 20 years on it before you get it. Yeah. Don't the guitars hold the tone somehow or it shapes the wood? I've heard that with classical guitar players, flamenco, that right. the more they bang on the, the box, the sounds, the vibrations, it starts to change the tone of the guitar over Big time. time. Yeah. That's, I have a Martin D28 that I've had for 30 years, and that's definitely grown into itself in a beautiful way. And is that way. because of you planning it? Is yeah. it pick up your tone, your vibe? Yeah, it's definitely my guitar, and it's battered because I've been a working musician most of those years, hammering it everywhere I go. But, um, yeah, they grow into themselves. I'm not, and you could say me, the, the fretboard definitely grows into me. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's all jagged and it's being refretted right now. So we'll see what that's like when it comes back. It's all bright and new. Yeah, might be have a different sound. It might. It will. Hopefully, actually. it won't be too different. I'm kind of nervous. <laughs> yeah, put you off a bit. 
So when when we like the first song you wrote, do you remember? Like, yeah, this is a song, and mm-hmm. what was that feeling like? Uh, me being the sensible, sentimentalist that I am, I cried because it was a breakup song with my first girlfriend. Oh, and uh, it was it was my fault, and the song was called "I'm Sorry." Oh, and uh, I still know it actually. Is it in your repertoire at all? No, no. That How make... does it sound now compared to your songs? Is it still had a bit of it in there, or is it embarrassing? Um, yeah, it's uh, it's less embarrassing than some of the ones that came after it. Um, it was uh, it it was an indicator to the future, for sure. Yeah, you know, Oasis and Garth Brooks influence basically just three minutes long, a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, a bridge, and a chorus. Like yeah. a, and already at ten years old, because that's what you get when you learn Garth Brooks songs or Oasis songs. They have a very pop um, formula to them that you know you can leave that afterwards. But that is like learning the rules to songwriting and get it in under three minutes thirty and figure yeah. out how you can do that, and then you can go from there. But those two songwriters really taught They're me how craftsmen. To. Yeah. Is that how you look at it? This is a job and I'm going to craft this. Yeah. Well, when I, when I quit working construction in LA to sing on the street, that was a, um, a very conscious, cause I am from very working class backgrounds and, uh, you know, slow and steady and start paying your pension when you're 16, you retire when you're 65 and you'll basically be rich. And I, I know loads of people who have beautiful lives like that, but I, I just couldn't do it. And because uh, you go, you know, football to construction. My first job after football was in a chemical factory, which was a shock to my system. And then, really, how so? Just the hours and the regimentation, and the or? noise, and the the um, the break room, fifty men smoking as many cigarettes as they could with no windows. Dark, one bulb. It's like classic. Yeah, coal, coal mine movie style, and you know I just come from being a professional footballer, and I was only nineteen, and I'm just sitting there thinking, oh my god, we need to do something different. Yeah, and uh, I know that dismal feeling. I've worked a bunch of factory jobs. Yeah, it's and again, it works for some people. I'm not saying that it's, but for me, my god, and look, I was lucky to get fired from a lot of jobs that weren't right for me. Lucky to get fired rather than quit. Mm-hmm. Because I always needed the money. Yeah. And I was always I was always a dreamer with a job. And uh, the f- the music dream didn't really consolidate until I met Terry Melcher on the Santa Monica Promenade. Oh, that's right. Somebody mentioned that you knew him. Yeah. Yeah, He's he's that's Doris Day's son, right? Yeah, producer of The Birds and The Beach Boys, Taj Mahal. Yeah, he's right in the middle of all of that in the 60s yeah. and 70s, including the Manson family and exactly, so yeah. forth. Yeah, what a life. Him and Lou Adler, yeah. But he he really became a mentor to me on the street. and Because he heard you busking? Yeah. And he just approached and said, wow, I like what I hear. Yeah, come to my studio on Wednesday. Wow, and then... And then we made, we recorded 12 when, songs. When was this exactly? Uh, that was 2000, 2001. Maybe, okay. Maybe even 20, 2000. 20 plus years ago. Yeah. And uh, we made um, a, a 12 song demo that I sold on the street. And then he became a mentor and a friend. 
and uh, we'd see quite a lot of each other. And it, he was the first person in the industry that was like, "You don't realize it, but you're really quite good, and you've got a lot of potential. And if you listen to this and think about this and learn to sing harmony and keep teaching yourself, you know, you got you could you could do things." And then. During that like mentorship period was when he died actually sadly. But um, oh, I don't remember him. Like, what was the story? Because he couldn't he, have been that old. He died of uh, skin cancer. Yeah. Oh my god. Traced back to a shoot on a beach in Paris, uh, in not in Paris, but in France, um, with his mom. Traced back to a shoot like some when he was 14, 14 years old, burned or something. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Wow. But he, yeah. you know, when somebody comes along and just. Helps you believe in yourself a little mm-hmm. bit more. And Sometimes it just takes one person. Yeah, because I put in a good solid decade of blind faith. Yeah, hard work after that. Not that I wasn't really working hard already. I love songwriting's always been something I wanted to do anyway. So it was never really work. Like inspirations, motivations easier with inspiration, right? So it's but the getting better at the guitar getting better time, learning to be a sound engineer, learning to play the bass, the piano, the, learning to mix. It all it was all off that, like, you could do this if you want. I'm like, really? Yeah. You know, and he was right. <laughs> yeah. So what was the, you know, what is your process? Like, what is a, you know, a typical day when you're on the grind look like? At home or on the road? Uh, well, home, because you live here in Ohio. I'm curious yeah. about that. Well, it depends. Um, if I'm working in the studio, I'll, I'll usually get up at about 5 a.m. because uh, the house is beautifully quiet then and I get a lot done between mm-hmm. 5 and 9. If the kids are in school, I'll take them to school at 7.30, come home and do that. Um, I usually, uh, even if I'm working in the studio or not for myself or other people I'll always have a guitar around because I'm always trying to see if I can get blessed by a song real quick yeah I saw a documentary it was very strange and I've talked about it before that it was about the theremin mm-hmm. Professor August theremin but Brian Wilson was in there talking about his just gets up in the morning and just plinks away at a piano till finds a tune or doesn't but he's just like sitting there, plinking away, and then he turns back to the camera and says, "You know, it's hard work being happy." Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Yeah, it is." Mm-hmm. Yeah, but just his, you know, ability to reach into the instrument and pull stuff out is just phenomenal. Never been anybody like him, I don't think. Is he's a great friend to Danny Hutton, been, and that's uh, yeah, Three Dog Night. And yeah, so that'll bring it back around. How did? Yeah, we still haven't got to how you got on this tour. Well, uh, so Danny Hutton's son moved to Ojai while the Vine gig was popping. Yeah. And uh, he came a couple of weeks on a row and saw, he's like, why does everybody in the room know all your, the words to your songs, you know? Yeah. And at the time, I was building a band and uh, in the corner with no rehearsal, just inviting people to come and, you know, fumble around until they knew the songs. And... Tim Allen on piano, Greg Weiser on drums, Matt Cheadle on guitar, but no bass player. And Tim's a bass player. So he walks in after a couple of weeks and says, you need a bass player. And I said, yes, I do. 
So the True to Form comes next week, no rehearsal. And um, a couple of weeks later, he says, oh, by the way, I've got a studio in Laurel Canyon. And wow. you want to make a record? It turns out he's won two Grammys too, but... As so, a producer or is this... A- as a, as an engineer on Jimmy Cliff and a singer on Jimmy Cliff. Um, oh. So he... Um, we make the record at his studio and his dad... The, stu- the studio is on the Three Dog Night compound in Laurel Canyon. And um, the Canyon Hut is called. And uh, his dad's in the sessions and stuff and we hit it off. And then his dad was like, you know, you guys should come on a West Coast run with Three Dog. So... We did with Five Piece Band, we Sacramento, Solana Beach. We did a, a few dates with them there. And um, and then after that, um, Danny asked if I would like to fly into the Midwest, meet the bus and do a run with them on the bus solo. And uh, that went really well too. And then the next question was, would you like the Southeast as well? I'm like, well, yeah, no. Then do you want the East Coast? Now it's the whole country. Wow. So how many dates have you toured with them? Oh, I've probably done about, I don't know, maybe 50 so far. And they tour all the time, you know. They, we yeah. don't, the bus keeps moving and then the band flies home. So yeah. I, I fly with the band. So we go out on a Wednesday, play Friday, Saturday, Sunday, sometimes Thursday as well. And then come home Monday and repeat. So yeah, come home to do your laundry for the past year and half. Yeah, so. almost a year. Well, since the pandemic opened up again, whenever yeah. that was, and then before that as well. So it's a rigorous schedule, but um, especially for somebody like me that's come all the way from the street and through the bars and the clubs, just to play in these places is an absolute dream. And what venues are you playing mostly? Uh, Old uh, rejuvenated theatres a lot, you know, between a thousand and three thousand cap. Wow! Um, like I said, we played the Ryman, we played the Birchmere, which is one of the most legendary dinner theatres in in America, in Virginia. The Birchmere, uh huh, very cool. The posters on the wall make you cry. Um, and then we do arenas, which is a. Uh, my last show was in an arena, actually. It was beautiful. That was in uh, Arizona, Prescott Valley. Mm. So, and then mostly theaters and arenas we play. Yeah. So you, the thousand to three thousand facilitate between me, but also between the crowd. My service to Three Dog Night is to make the crowd a bunch of individuals. And by the time I leave, that they'll be I together. Want, I want them to feel like family. Yeah. yeah. Now, coming back from the pandemic, have you found audiences restive or sort of lost that touch or that lost that spirit and fighting to get it back? Or is there just like a pent up enthusiasm? How would you describe the sensations of an audience in the, uh, in the first few weeks of getting back out on the road? Uh, or was it right where you left off? Uh I think everybody's very grateful to be there. Yeah. Uh, but I, there is also a trepidation in everybody because COVID is like hanging out in the kitchen and everybody's trying to get on with their lives, you know? Yeah. So, and we specialize in bringing people into small spaces together, you know, so that 
we're not out of the woods with it in the back of our minds, but there's definitely um, a gratitude that is obvious. Yeah. And they are eager to connect to mm-hmm. that communal feeling, I can imagine. Yeah. What few times I've been to live music events it really felt special. Yeah. Yeah. There was a Grateful Shred concert. There was a, you know, a Grateful Dead cover band. Yeah, I've seen the posters. So good. Yeah. But I thought, well, it's going to be a bunch of old burnouts, you know, mm-hmm. Grateful Dead. Oh, no, they were teenagers and oh yeah zillennials and you know lots of younger people with with their kids and it was like really felt festivals Mm -hmm. experience really i mean they were really so good i'm not a deadhead or dead fan but i like them but i was completely wrapped up in it it was such a great feeling and to see libby bowl full like that yeah yeah it was like our little town, can you believe it? Mm-hmm. So it must be exciting to come come back here and yeah, play in front of your your fans and my family. My my kids haven't seen me on a big stage. And um, and how old are your kids now? Ten and eight. Oh, they're still in the hero worshiping phase, <laughs> but not for much longer. Yeah, that's uh, but it's here. good that they get this experience of their father up on a stage with all these people yeah. at this age and that, because if they were like 13 or something they could hardly stand the yeah. embarrassment right. <laughs> maybe they are both musicians though they, they get oh, it that's awesome but uh, they'll be side stage backstage but um, yeah and my mom and dad are coming out actually which is a blessing from Manchester yeah wow for this gig especially well, or they were, were they going to be out here anyway? they were going to be out here this summer anyway so um, I just said these days if anybody's ever coming to visit me it's the, the caveat is make sure I'm here yeah because I'm generally not these days yeah. so so I was like uh, one way to guarantee that I will be here is come on <laughs> in this window you. yeah come for the for the gig yeah, I'm. I'm actually not going to be here when they arrive. I'm going to be five days behind them, but which is unusual. But they'll get to be with their grandchildren solo, which will be beautiful. Yeah, and for your wife, especially babysitting. Yeah, she's a, exactly. Well, she's going to be at a conference too. The uh, the stars aligned. So oh, nice. So you know, this whole Ojai experience it feels like. Something's changed since the pandemic. I haven't made up my mind if it's good or bad. I think it's mostly good. I think that we got a lot of transplants that are maybe a little younger and they bring some creative juice and our mm-hmm. restaurant game got much better. Right. And what's, what's your take? Are you having, hearing any stirrings of any projects or any, you know, a shift in the, in the zeitgeist? Um. I'll be honest, I, when I was playing the Vine, I was at one point I was playing Wednesday nights and Sunday nights and supporting the boys on Thursday nights, and I was in town all the time. I lived just up the street there. And since then, I've moved out to out the river bottom in Miners Oaks, basically, and um, and I travel most of the time. So my, I'm aware of the new restaurants, and there's some nice young people that have moved into town. But I generally just go to Jim and Rob's for happy hour. <laughs> that's your, that's your routine. <laughs> Jim, this time without Jim and Rob's will be 
Yeah. It's, uh, that's I'd, a, I'd, I'd hate to I think of it. I remember when I first got here, they were out where Seafresh is now. They were splitting space with Seafresh, actually. And, you know, the green chicken chimichanga that I would get for lunch. And I just remember that. Yeah, that was, you know, Rob Tucker. He's such a great guy. I really yeah. love him. And, and very high. Yeah, and the local crew at the bar there, like every time I go in, just yesterday, pop in for one on the way home, and there's always a hello there, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I like bars. It's like home. Yeah, especially if you've been a performer there. It gives you a feeling of like you're, you're part of the place, mm-hmm. that your echoes are embedded in the wood. It's like you take some kind of a ownership of it almost. Make that space yours. So what... I'm always curious about, you know, the artistic process and how people play off each other and collaboration and the competition and how that all works. And you are part of a set of some very talented people. And how does that work for you? Are you trying to one-up each other? Are you jumping into somebody else's song with, you know, suggestions for arrangements? Is it like, you know, how does it, what is it like just hanging out with people like Tim and, you know, like. You know, Tim, Tim's got free reign in my studio for the rest of his life. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, well, people don't know. He's like sort of musical royalty back yeah. in England. Yeah. And he, uh, and he plays on my records for free and I work for him for free. That's basically an agreement we've had for ages because we love each other, you know, we just want to help each other. And he plays in my band and will do for as long as he wants. And um, I don't think, I don't think competition is uh, the right word, but it is good to be around people who make you go, I should work a little harder. Yeah. And that's, I don't think that's competition. It's just getting your bell rung, you know, you sit alone and think you're cool and then somebody comes along like Tim and lights up the piano and you're like well oh, yeah well, I gotta step up my game yeah what is that feeling what how can I get that feeling that look I like that feeling mm-hmm. you know and then you know it's obviously you don't make friend every musician you meet that you respect doesn't become your best friend but it's it's beautiful to hear people's different takes on years and years and years of devotion and care. And there's a lot of guys in Ohio, like you say, and ladies that are epitomes of that. And I'm definitely a better musician because of the things I've witnessed in Ohio. That's a yeah. fact, you know, it's like helping each other along or dragging each other up or whatever you want to call it. It's, um, not to mention with each other on the records, they're just, you know, the Jesse Siebenbergs, you know, Simon. It's um, an insane crew. If you're going to make a record around here, you've got like the best players. And Simon's got all the gear. I mean, he's an expert level. Yeah, he's a scientist yeah, as well as a great yeah. drummer, yeah. Yeah, I was really um, enjoyed talking with him just from the technical side of the business that I don't normally think about. But he lost everything in a fire and had to rebuild. Mm-hmm. I think it gave him like a new lease on life. Like yeah, a different new canvas, yeah. Yeah, like, so that's not all bad. It depends on what you do with it, you know. Exactly, and, you know, it was a slow process, but the the house he 
built is beautiful. You yeah. Know? And then he's got a nice space, perfect mixing space. And and he also has a great relationship with uh, Carbonite. Yeah. You know, so he's... It's, it's, it's the protocols one through five, I think, of those things he's been working in the jazz right. world and then playing with Hiromi, who is like a sensation. Mm-hmm. It's like, and then he's just a townie here in Ojai as well. Yeah. And same with you. You're out 50 gigs with Three Dog Night and then just sitting up here in my little corner. It's kind of yeah. interesting. I I love Ojai. Like, I've lived quite a lot of places, you know, because when yeah, I... Yeah, well, how did you, like, get from England to Kansas City? That must have been a bit of a journey. Well, I went from, um, I went from the chemical factory. Yeah. And I saw a, an, an ex-girlfriend in the bar that night, and uh, she'd heard what happened to my life at, at the time, and she was like, you should leave for a while. Just, yeah. You know, get some space and figure something out here, because... You're not doing very well. And, um, wow. Is that why you broke up with her? Is that she would give you those hard truths? <laughs> so she said, um, come to the Isle of Jersey. I'm working in a hotel and there's a place where you can sleep and I might be able to get you a job. So I went over with my backpack and a guitar and, um, I landed on Jersey and true to the form, there was a plate, there was a barn where I, squatted illegally on the beach and there was a couple of South African guys who ran a concession doing like banana boats and pedalos in the ocean in the bay and they gave me a job and I squatted with them in the barn and that was like the first three months of me being out of Manchester and mm. the like, Isle of Jersey it's it's kind of lush and rich and yeah. a lot of cows right I mean Cow, like, uh, uh, cows and um, and tourists, right? Banks. It's a, yeah, it's an it's offshore a, It's banking, an offshore banking yeah, thing. Like the Isle of Man. And yeah, and a lot of tourists. And um, and a lot of young people trying to get away. So it was... It would be like their first step away from wherever they're from. Yeah, whether it was South Africa, Australia, you know, Scotland, Ireland. A lot of French, because the proximity yeah, right to France. Door, yeah. yeah, So a lot of Portuguese. And... Um, so that was really good to open my heart and mind at the possibilities of life outside Manchester and outside of football. And I got a gig on a Wednesday night in the bar that I worked in. It was really popular. And um made some friends. And then I had an opportunity to move to LA. And I took it. From the Isle of Jersey. Straight from the Isle of Jersey, yeah. And I moved to LA. I lived in LA for eight years. That's where I started singing on the street and meeting people in the industry and Terry Melcher. And honing my imagination of what my life could be. Mm-hmm. And then I met my wife on the street. Did you have a day job when uh, in L.A.? Yeah, I was painting. My first job, which I kept for about two years, was uh, painting houses. Mm. And it's good, honest work. Yeah. It's, it was one of the few jobs that I had that I was actually decent at, you know. Yeah. And then, but... In the end, the fumes would affect the way I sang. Oh, really? You could hear it in your voice? I would lose my voice. Whoa. So I just decided to go and sing on the street. You know, amplified street performance, busking. The busking and amplified street performing are very different because you can actually make some decent money amplified street performing. And I did, and I 
found a way to live in Santa Monica doing that, and I did that for eight years. When you say amplified, you mean with an amp, or did you have a board and record loops and try to make it sound like a band like some of them do? This was before that technology. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. Joseph Arthur back in that day was just Oh, my into God. That. That, that guy from Cleveland or... Maybe. Somewhere in Ohio. Yeah. Oh, I should. I love that. I can't. I'm glad you brought that up. I haven't listened to him in a long time. I just love yeah. his songs. He's he, just. He was the only guy I knew about doing that. The one man band. Mm-hmm. But these are beautiful, haunting lyrics and melodies mm-hmm. that he put together. He's fantastic. But this is probably back in the early or mid two thousands that I was on that exactly kick, yeah. on that tip. But he was he was on the cutting edge, but with that stuff then. But I was just you know you, you get a motorcycle battery and you invert the power um you know dcac and then i'd have a, a little pa and a microphone like, and a, a, like a pig nose i started with a it's called a maxi mouse and i blew it so then i'd actually i got a big trolley and i'd have a full pa two speakers two 12 inch speakers and a head a blanket a table with terry's cd on it and then it, that table ended up having like seven cds on it in the end and um, that's what I did. I, where where would you set up? Did you have outside Johnny Rockets mostly? Okay, that's uh, but um, I you have to move every two hours, and I usually play like four, maybe six hours a day. So um, you'd always have to have a different spot. But I met my wife there, and her after after living together for a couple of years and being married. Um, we, uh, her mother needed assistance in Kansas, really. And, um, oh, was she from Kansas mm-hmm. City? Hence. So we went and lived with her mum for a couple of years and ended up buying a house near her. For about one quarter or less of what you would Oh pay. my God. $129,000 for Isn't that amazing? And it was beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> and we and had a couple of kids. The scene in Kansas City is quite something, too. The yes. blues is, I mean, Bebop exactly. was born. Born, it's birthplace of bebop. It's still present there too. Like people, yeah. especially in the people who go out to see music, there's a real culture of supporting the musicians yeah. that live there, and Did you can you get paid there? there. I played, I played five nights a week for about seven years there. Nice. Yeah, I had a booking agent, and um, I would, my wife was in grad school at this time, and our kids were young, and I would, I would watch the kids in the day and sing at night, and she would go to grad school. And uh, oh. the glory of the Midwest, you can get by like that, you know. Yeah. And um, not just get by, we were all right. And um, and then after a while, we, uh, my wife was ready to graduate her first job out of being a graduate. And she got a job at the Santa Barbara DA's office oh. as the... Um, supervisor of the victim witness advocacy program. So that was a great opportunity for the family. And I wanted to come back to California. California, the weather. Oh my God. I love California so much. Having lived in Boston and North Carolina and Kansas and Manchester and Jersey. And there's no place like California. And uh, more specific, like Ojai. I know this is the gem of the gem. Yeah. I feel so bl- mm-hmm. lucky to be here every day. I mean, when I come home, I always come home to like, oh my god, yeah. This well, is- for me, it was like coming off on a business trip when I just after I first moved here, and then coming in the Casita Springs on a 
Sunday after the trip and waiting for that Sunday blues, the melancholy of, shit, it's another work week ahead and back in the grind. And it just didn't happen. Didn't happen. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I live in a place where I'm happy to come back to first time in my life. I always lived in shitty little small towns. Mm -hmm. And so here I am in a non-shitty little small town. Felt good. I know. Happy to come back to is something I say a lot. Yeah. Because I remember when living in L.A., and I loved L.A., like, but dropping into L.A. from somewhere like Colorado or something, you're like, no! Yeah. But here, you're like, oh, okay, let's get in the back garden. This is nice. Yeah. yeah. So you plan on, uh, this is where you're going to put down your roots, Ojai? Um, there's no talk of not. <laughs> of not. Yeah. You know, it's um, we're on a journey. Um, there's no place I'd rather be. It's uh, it's a conversation for the whole family overall. But yeah, but the kids. It seems like such a great place to. I don't know if you know the band Ockerville River. Will Chef. Okay. He played here at the women's club, which was really surprising to me with Damien Gerardo. Mm -hmm. I loved that indie music from the two thousands. Yeah. And. Last time I seen him, he was opening for Wilco with like, you know, 3,500 people or something. And here he is in the women's club in Ojai with 120 people, none of whom I knew. Like, they'd all come up from Los Angeles or wherever. Mm -hmm. But he said he'd just been wandering around during the day. And it was like the Thursday farmer's market going off and kids running around and, you know, bicycles and skateboards. And it's like, this must be a really great place to grow up. Yeah. My kids are doing well. Yeah. You know, they go to San Antonio and they uh they got friends and they're nice people. Yeah. Know? They got dreams and they're doing well. Yeah. So tell me about that note in your phone. It's so, quite a story. Yeah, in regards to process, um, you know, speaking of uh inspiration and where does it come from and the way that I've done it is I get up early and I will always be available and I'll just grind through the craft of songwriting, always believing that at some point I'm going to get struck by an inspirational line or an inspirational song. And um, Let's Go Get Ice Cream was definitely a moment like that where the whole song came through. And uh, But I'd written three songs that morning before noon so I definitely put myself in position to receive a song like Ice Cream. But um, so yesterday I woke up and uh, I just wanted to tell stories. So I, I basically made some characters and told stories that from my own memory of my own life, like the waitress singing songs all day and the, the, the young man spending all his money in the bar, staring at the door, hoping that the love of his life is just going to walk through it, and so on. And I wrote, like, you know, maybe five or six different verses based on fictional characters that represent memories of my own. And the whole time I'm thinking, what is this song about? And But I push that anxiety away and just keep writing different stories. 
so in the end, I just had the stories on the pages, but no real um, binding point. Structure. Yeah, and no hook, no no point to the song until the line came through in the end. And my wife came in and said, that's the line. And, uh, yeah. and it's uh, one more second chance at the first time. And that's my latest song. I just wrote it yesterday. I'm going to go home and finish it actually. But the point is the, the six verses were written in faith. The chorus and the hook came I get goosebumps as I say it, but and this is this is the blessing of how I write songs, and I, I trust this process. Is I will put, I will be in the chair, I will hold the guitar, I will write and write and write, and then enough times to keep me <laughs> in the game. Yeah, that bolt of lightning will come down and say, "Here you go," and everything makes sense. And it's almost not even from my own. It's like channeled. It's and it's only because I am in the position to receive it. And putting in the hours. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Danny. Great story. So one uh, feature that I do on the podcast is the grab and go. Like, there's a fire beside your family and pets. What are you, what is the, what are you going to be getting the most? Do you have masters? and? Um, well, hard drives. But that is a very easy question for somebody who uh, did it. Yeah. You know, because in the Thomas fire, we uh, we had a tiny little black car at the time, a Kia Rio, and uh, we didn't even fill it up. And there was four of us in it. And it wow. was, a, and I, I took my hard drives, my Martin, I didn't have my Collings at the time. I, had, I took my main acoustic guitar, my main electric guitar, all my hard drives from the studio. And I, I had my friend's Moog that I didn't want to burn. <laughs> so I took <laughs> his Moog. Not on your conscience. Yeah. But literally, I, and I, it was profound because you got four people and you're leaving your house not knowing whether you're coming back to it. And you're looking in, in the boot, the trunk of the car, and you could have got like three times the things everybody grabbed. Yeah. It's just so clear in that moment what is important and what is not. It is clarifying. That's mm -hmm. why I love to ask that question and mm -hmm. really get to see what what people regard. Yeah, it's my my philosophy was take something I can make money with. Yeah, which was tools of the trade. Yeah, take your tools and take your information because a lot of those hard drives are other people's information as well. Yeah, and don't lose your friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Danny. So um, another question is, what are you listening to lately? What's on your your uh, radar as far as music? I think uh, just like everybody else, it seems, but Chris Stapleton is a gl the, glorious songwriter. Oh, yeah. And uh, Jason Isbell and who's the one uh, did that great Nirvana cover? Um Sturgill Simpson. Right, yeah. I get those guys sort of lumped in my head for some reason. I don't yeah. know why. Like the three sort of deep country singer-songwriters. Yeah. I love them. I just really... Jason and um, the other guy that you said with um, the Nirvana cover. Uh, Sturgill Simpson. Yeah. They're, 
I don't gravitate towards them as much as uh, Stapleton and Nathaniel Rateliff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, um, although I do, I do like them, but I'm kind of in love with Chris Stapleton and, and Nathaniel well, Rateliff. Well, he, he came to Nashville to be a songwriter, not a performer. Yeah. And he, that part just got, I think it was, he said somewhere that it was just the hearing other people do his songs that he felt such an ownership over. And even if he wasn't that great a musician or a singer, he felt really called to give it a go. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's been quite a go. It's doing great. Yeah. I don't know anybody else that's. I'll tell you who I got in country music, which isn't really my genre, but I listen to a lot of music is Colton Wall. Do you know who that guy is from Alberta? He emerged like a fireball. Oh, my God. He's like 24 years old, and he sounds like he's 197. Uh-huh. His, that voice, just deep baritone. He's oh got God. a straight-up cult as well. His his following is it really one of those lightning-in-a-bottle kind of followings. You yeah. know? I mean, the songs are, are really impressive, especially for somebody so young. But how does somebody from some obscure backwater and... You know, the Canada, just middle of nowhere. How do they? I mean, it's just so odd to me that he just like what's there's no word of him. And then he's everywhere, like mm-hmm. from one day to the next. It is, you know, obviously that it, it, he must have found him some kind of uh, machine that worked for him. Yeah. You know, but initially I, I, it's, it, it's like trying to put your finger on what is magnetism. Yeah. You know, why? Because he sounds like such an old soul. That's what I mm-hmm. figured. Right. People do like that. And and he does live it, you know. Is he? Yeah. yeah. He's, he's doing well. It's... All right. Um, anything else? We'll talk about the 18th of the, August. The 19th, yeah. 19th of August. Well, yeah, there are there are some tickets left, I believe, and um, it's going to be beautiful. I'm going to play solo for about half an hour, and then Three Dog Night will make you remember your whole life. Yeah. Well, these bands that have been playing this summer, especially with Sterling venues, are just the nostalgia. And it's always fun for me to see younger people there who I know were not even conceived before. These, right. You know. Mm-hmm. And just to feel that connection that crosses generations, it's it's really lovely. I think I'm one of those younger people that wasn't conceived. Yeah, <laughs> you're young for Three Dog Night. All right, Danny, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Hey, everyone. It's Brett Bradigan, just thinking out loud. Now, however long it's been I've been doing this podcast... I've gotten to a bad habit of forgetting to clear the micro SD disk on which I record between sessions. So this conversation with Danny, which went on for about an hour, probably should have gone on for another hour and a half, because afterwards we sat here and talked for another half hour about making a living in the music world, but mostly about his wonderful approach to songwriting as a craft, as showing up and sitting there and not loitering around waiting for inspiration to strike, to treat it as a craft, which is what it really is. 
I learned a lot about him and his process, but also helpful information for me and hopefully for everyone else. Anyway, that's it for this episode of Ojai Talk of the Town. We'll keep an ear out for you. 